the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Great to be together. In a few moments, we will visit with my old friend, Dr. Paul Kengor. Dr. Paul Kengor of Grove City College, an extraordinary man, extraordinary uh, father, He's got eight children. His wife is an amazing lady, and he's a professor. And also now the new editor of the American Spectator, spectator.org, a very, very cool and important magazine and uh, website. Uh, very good guy. You want to visit with him. Uh, you want to follow him and read his stuff. We're going to visit with him in a few moments. And uh, the news is not all good, by the way. The reason why I'm talking to him sort of on a sudden, uh, uh, suddenly is because one of the uh, really great guys, one of the great guys uh, of um, writing and politics and understanding stuff. George Newmeyer passed away, only 50 years old, uh, got uh, malaria while covering stories in uh, Africa. So we'll talk with, uh, we'll talk with uh, Paul Kangor about that and uh, look forward to it. So, um, but today, today, what you need to know. Yet another day of revelations about people having classified documents in their home or in their library or in their garage or in the Corvette or in the blah, blah, blah. Uh, we're now up to, I think, three or four locations where Joe Biden, uh, as uh, during, his vi- during the time after being vice president, which was just a short period, about four years, he it looks like he moved a lot of documents to a lot of places. One thing that I haven't heard anyone talking about is how many homes does Joe Biden own? He owns a home in Delaware, big house. He owns a home in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, which is a big home, a beach home. He looks like he owns at least two more homes. I I have to say, if you make $170,000 a year as a uh, senator from 1972 or three until uh, you leave office, uh, when you're vice president, I think you make a couple hundred grand, maybe $250,000, something like that. Um, and suddenly you're worth millions and tens of millions. Um, something doesn't add up. At the uh, the best case scenario is that you cashed out, and a little bit like Hillary Clinton, you were raking in money out of office, um, and people were betting you were going in office, it looks like. Or worst case, you were getting money all along, and you were getting 10% for the big guy, as it was said by his uh, son Hunter. Could have been Hunter, could have been uh, bloviating, could have been... Uh, you know, uh, kind of bravado, a young man uh, looking like he was cool, pretending he was important. Um, but, you know, I don't know if you know, Joe Biden's got two brothers. He's got one sister, I think, maybe may, maybe more sisters. And he's got one sister I know of, two brothers, both who are prominent lobbyists. Why wouldn't they be? Uh, that's a pretty good gig if your brother is a senator and you can uh, find a way to get yourself on the payroll. So um, that's a big deal uh, we're going on. But here's the thing. I just want to point out to you how um, unfair and one-sided the media is, that anything that happens with Trump is treated as uh, something dramatic, and with everybody else, it's just something that happens. So now we have a situation where uh, um, uh, a classified material was taken by Mike Pence, 
taken by Joe Biden and taken by Donald Trump. In the case of Donald Trump, they raided Mar-a-Lago and they spent about two weeks, maybe three weeks, could be four, I don't know, talking about how uh, amongst the classified material, Adam Schiff would come out and he'd say, amongst the classified material, it's unbelievable to us. We've got this. It could include, it might include, it could be stuff that uh, people, uh, you know, really think are uh, serious for national security, maybe even nuclear secrets. And you had Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell and others come out and say, well, we, we don't know for sure, but it could be nuclear secrets. It wasn't If it was nuclear secrets, we would have known by now. Nobody's doing that to Trump. When Donald Trump uses his uh, a company, his build a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar company uh, to make sure that he pays the least amount of taxes ever, like anybody else would. It's considered, uh, oh, it's an indication of high crimes and misdemeanors. Well, in fact, there's an example. When Donald Trump calls the Ukrainian president and says, what the heck's going on over there? Straighten things out. It's a high crime and misdemeanor. When Joe Biden says, fire that prosecutor or I'm not going to give you release the money, it's considered uh, you know, politics, reform politics. It's over and over again. And the best example, another, oh, another example. When Don Jr. meets with someone in the, in Trump Tower during a campaign where someone says, Hey, you ought to listen to this person. They think they've got some kind of, in, uh, some kind of information on, on, on Hillary. Turns out the person is some sort of Russian or some sort of, uh, remember it was like an adoption. Someone had set up a, set up the idea that this was about adoptions and then turned out to be something else. Don Jr. took the meeting and walked away. And yet it was made out to be some massive collusion. Still is to this day. Over and over again, the question has to become if over and over again, the same treatment is happening where whatever Trump does is worse, whatever Trump does is horrendous, and whatever everybody else does, oh, well, you know, it's just what happens. I, I don't know, it's just what happens. And here's the thing. The question you have to ask, what you need to know is why. And at a certain point, the why is that they can't stand, they can't stomach Donald Trump more than these other people. And now you say the question again is, why is that? What is it that he threatens? Why is he a threat to them? Well, I mean, you know, at this point, I think Pence got dragged into the classified documents thing because there, some people are trying to make it like, hey, 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 it's not a bit, not as big a deal. Everybody does it. Um, don't hurt uh, Joe Biden. I think that's what that is. Also, I think Mike Pence probably went and said to his team, hey, dig through our files and see what you find. Because I think any, I think probably what happens is anybody that leaves office is leaving office with, uh, with some sense, uh, of things, um, that, uh, that some things that they take with them that maybe people would say they shouldn't. I, at this point, it looks like that happens a lot. I mean, I wonder, I have a friend that left the U.S. Senate recently. I wonder if he left with a, uh, a bunch, a trove of documents. I don't know. I don't know. We have to, we have to see. We have to find out. But my point here is what you need to know is the double standard is not, it's not worth, um, it's not worth crying over a double standard only. That's not the only thing I'm saying. Recognize the double standard that when Trump does it, it's a great crime against humanity or a high crime and misdemeanor. And, and when other people do it, it's just, you know, oh, well, you know, trying. It's a it's an oversight. Biden had an oversight, you know, documents and stuffed in the back of the Corvette. But ask yourself why. The what you need to know on this is why. And the why is because Donald Trump was a threat. He wasn't a manageable type politician. I think that's just the truth. I think that's the, at a certain point, you cannot unpack the uh, reality of what they're doing uh, and how they're handling it in any other way. You know, um, a couple hundred thousand dollars of, uh, of troll farms on Facebook, 
uh, by a Russian, you know, looks like nitwits. They actually made they made pro Hillary and pro Trump troll farm ads for Facebook. And yet it's characterized as, you know, Putin is out there making pro Trump uh, uh, propaganda. That's how it's characterized. So, you know, again, that there is a double standard now is firmly established. That there is a double standard is 100% true. People see it and feel it. The question is why. And what you need to know more and more is it's a th- Donald Trump's a threat. He was a threat. He had to be pushed out. He had to be gotten rid of. He had to be stopped. And you don't have to watch Tucker Carlson, who did an incredible job a couple nights ago of laying out how uh, it feels and seems when you put these facts together one after another. It seems like the sort of Washington establishment, the so-called deep state, was clearing out Trump. That's how it seems. When you listen to Tucker lay it out, he goes back in time to even back to uh, Watergate. And he shows like every time, you know, you got you got uh, somebody who's a a threat to the status quo, to the insider status quo, that person ends up uh, pushed out. Seems pretty obvious. But in this case, we're seeing one after another, these uh, these examples of the double standard and how Trump is treated differently. And then you uh, and then you are uh, um, you are uh, uh, aware of it happening profoundly. And then you say, why? And why is the next uh, is the next um, uh, that why is the next question uh, that needs to be asked? And then what you need to know is the answer is pretty clear. Trump was a threat. All right. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk with Paul Kengor, Dr. Paul Kengor, AmericanSpectator.org. Excuse me, American Spectator. Go to Spectator.org, their website, um, and we'll talk about uh, the late uh, and very prolific and wonderful guy, George Neumeyer, uh, with Dr. Paul Kengor and a lot more. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Don't forget, visit ProAmericaReport.com, ProAmericaReport.com. Sign up for the daily email there. In fact, uh, George uh, Neumeyer's book, the late George Neumeyer's book, was, of course, with Phyllis Schlafly. Uh, the book was called No Higher Power, Obama's War on Religious Freedom. No Higher Power, Obama's War on Religious Freedom came out in 2012. Phyllis Schlafly with George Neumeyer uh, from uh, Regnery. Um, and a good book, really good, interesting and um, important. And uh, just a great sadness that this happened uh, now. So when we take a break, we'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a minute. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. It's kind of a, 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 a pretty thoroughly mixed uh, bag. Our next interview is uh, my old friend, uh, Dr. Paul Kengor, who's a professor up at Grove City College and has been an extraordinary contributor uh, on the literary scene, uh, writing uh, books and, and uh, especially about um, Reagan and Judge Clark and then about communism, all these things. Uh, but among other things, he works um, as a writer and has for the American Spectator, which is exciting news is he's been named the editor, um, which I should have uh, trumpeted more before now, Paul. But um, the real reason I got him on was because Georgia Newmeyer, who is a writer and has written all over the place, including uh, a book with the late Phyllis Schlafly, uh, passed away a- a- in the last day or so. And it's stunning to me. I can't even I think of him as so young and such a, a vibrant presence. So it's kind of a mix. And congratulations, Dr. Paul Kangor, on being editor of the American Spectator. It's exciting news. And uh, dealing with this uh, death, probably in your first month is not what you expected. So I'm, I'm sorry for that. 
Yeah, yeah, it's definitely not, Ed. I, I was really shocked, saddened. I'm still sick about it. I can't get it out of my mind. And I got a call last week, Friday, in the morning, fairly early in the morning, from Bob Terrell, R.M. Terrell Jr., who's the founder of the American Spectator, which he founded on the campus of Bloomington, Indiana, University of Indiana, Bloomington, in 1967. Yeah. So, so Bob is um, still around very well. Bob is 79 years old, and and he asked me last year to be his chosen successor as editor in chief. And you know, Bob right now is still editor in chief. I'm editor, and so we'll begin that transition. But, but among other things, it it made me the editor for George Newmayer who had been my editor at one point when he was editor of Catholic World Report wow. about 15 years ago, which you probably read, Ed, and that was just an outstanding publication. George was a, a terrific editor. He had me write a few cover pieces and other articles, and, and, and of course, I read him in American Spectator, where he came on to the American Spectator about 30 years ago as an intern wow. and and has been writing for us ever since. He was 50 years old when he died last week. And one of our best writers, fearless, a, a fearless, you know, courageous Catholic reporter, you know, old-fashioned reporter who truly went after the hard stories and exposed some scandalous things in the church. And, and he died of malaria, of all things, malaria in, in Africa last week. So a, a total shock, and, and I'm really saddened and just sickened by it. Well, we all know, again, yeah, we're talking with Dr. Paul Kengor, and, uh, and uh, um, uh, uh, here's the thing about George, um, and I mean this as a compliment. I, you'll get it. I mean, you're, you're a professor. You're a teacher. Y even in your writing, you're a teacher. I, you can see it in sort of mm -hmm. who you are, and George was a, 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 a like a journalist, an investigative journalist. He was kind of like, and in some ways, those guys and gals are are not. They're just not settled. I, I don't mean it as an insult. He he was just always driving somewhere. He was always pushing somewhere. He was always looking for uh, what was next. And you know, I think I know um, from having had a conversation with Tom Spence of Regnery that um, you know over these years, as as George has written more books, he's got another one that was in the works on religious freedom. I think in Africa, as part of why he was there, he just was kind of driven in a way that old fashioned journalists are. And it's a it's a calling, not it's it really is a calling. It's a it's a calling forth that's not uh, common. Let's say it that way. Yeah, and and I mean in the sense too that you know he was very very Catholic. It was a vocation, right? I mean this was this was really what he was doing, what he was all about. And he was single. He was he was fifty years old and single. Although um, I'll share here, he he had a girlfriend that he was very serious with um, in Africa, in the country that he was visiting. We we have a piece that we just posted yesterday by Daniel Allot. That's A L L O T who was a close friend of George, and he talks about that, about, about, about George having a girlfriend. And when I found out a few weeks ago that, that he was going to Africa, when I learned it from Bob Terrell and Bob's wife, I said, Africa, what's he doing down there? Does he have a girlfriend down there? I was kind of joking, right? And, 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 and he did. I, I don't know all the details of that. I, I don't know if she was from that area or what, but they were pretty serious. And, and I think the main reason, though, that he was there was um, was that he was writing a book 
on Christianity in Africa. And I watched just a couple days ago a video that he had posted of himself standing outside of a new Catholic church there, which was, he yeah. described about seven times in that yeah. three-minute video as a monstrosity. <laughs> <laughs> it was just an, an ugly-looking, ugly-looking building. And and to him, Ed, it symbolized you know, the decline of the Catholic faith in Africa, while evangelicalism, evangelical churches were rising right. and and expanding, which was uh, more symptomatic of of the growth of Christianity general in Africa on the evangelical side, not the Catholic side. But, but yeah, he was an old-fashioned reporter who was willing to do that and you know, live out of a suitcase or wherever, and he did it so well for, uh, gee, almost 30 years. Uh, we're talking with uh, Dr. Paul Kangor, uh, recently uh, named as the editor of the American Spectator. And uh, in that capacity, uh, we're talking about his colleague, uh, George Newmeyer, and, and uh, mentioned that he uh, wrote this book with Phyllis Schlafly. And, and in truth, as Phyllis did, uh, she was a brutal editor. I, I imagine, Paul Kangor, you're the same as she is after all this writing. And so actually, mm-hmm. a, lot of, a lot of the work George had, a lot of the research George had done, um, and they worked together, and she enjoyed the heck out of it. It was, uh, again, I heard it from Tom Spence. It was um, Tom Spence told me, I think it was George's idea. He had this book and he had this topic and he brought it up and said, and, and, um, and I think at that time, Tom Spence was not the editor, uh, in chief of, of, uh, whatever he is at, at Regnery. He was, um, um, he was still, but he was working there. And he said, you know, you ought to pair this off with Phyllis Schlafly. And they had a great time. And, and the, uh, and the, the book was, uh, I think a, a valuable contribution. It was called, uh, uh, Obama's War on Religious Freedom. No higher power. Obama's War on Religious Freedom. Um, uh, Paul, maybe. Maybe a way to tri- give a tribute to George and talk about your new post. How do in this sort of modern world, I even use the term loosely, whatever this is, this chaotic modern situation we're in. How does the American spectator and writers like George and vision like you have, how does it fit in? How do you how do you explain that to people? Here's what you need. Here's what you're seeing. Here's how you're formed um, through this writing. Well, well uh, tell me about that. It's a big challenge. It is a big challenge. It's not easy for magazines and, and you know, uh, magazines of opinion, conservative opinion. At, w- at one time, Ed, in the 1990s, the American Spectator had a circulation of 330,000, wow. which is just extra- extraordinary. Wow. Yeah, I think, I think National Review, which is, you know, the two big boys on the block have been American Spectator and National Review going back respectively uh, 1967 and 1957, their founding. And in fact, Terrell and William F. Buckley Jr. both knew each other really well. And Buckley used to say that the National Review never made a profit. It was always in the black or in, in the red. And I think the maximum circulation they ever had with print was about 110,000. And, and really, National Review, like the American Spectator, uh, exists on contributions, subscribers and donors and and uh, an American Spectator is set up as a nonprofit organization foundation. That's one of the only ways to keep it going. Uh, we we do we do print, uh, two print editions per year, and you know, other than that, we are we are online every day. So most of these publications now are almost exclusively online. But we manage to hang in there and stay in print. And and of course, getting getting back to your question. That also makes it more difficult to to pay your writers, right? To pay reporters, and right. and and in the sense to you know, pay them, 
pay them a, 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 a living wage, <laughs> a good a good salary that they can do the kind of things that George did. In George's case, we had we had some generous benefactors, donors who supported his work that that allowed him to do it. But it's a challenge, and it's it's funny. I've thought about this many times, Ed. You know, people see our name in print and in books or hear you on the radio and they think, wow, they're out there as a, as a public person, public intellectual. They must be loaded. <laughs> they must be really, really rich, right? And I'm thinking, no, I, I should have went, I should have, you know, applied my writing genius to Wall Street. <laughs> then, then I'd, then I'd be loaded, right? But, but no, a lot of, a lot of us, Really don't make much money and, and, you know, struggle, struggle to get by. And I, I think that was George too, but he did it because he loved it and, and he really made an impact. He really did make an impact. And I think what sickens me the most about the whole thing is not only you know, simply that, that he's gone, but, but how much we're going to miss the kind of journalistic things he was doing. I, I don't think he's replaceable. I can't think of anybody else out there um, who who can step in with the knowledge base, the contacts, the the understanding that George had uh, to 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 pick up and and do what he did so well. Yeah, uh, we're t- we were talking with Dr. Paul Kengor, and and that's kind of what I mean. He was fifty, but he was kind of a throwback. He was uh, he was a throwback yeah. kind of journalist, you know. And 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 in some ways, um, that's not fair, but somewhat accurate. By not having a family and having settled down, he was able to go and range into areas and into specialties and expertise. I mean, there's there's um and 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 his his um writing showed that. I think it's really interesting. By by the way, we're talking with Dr. Paul. Kengor and, and, and his um, description of the American Spectator um, leads me to z- remind people. I mean, you, you find those. I often tell my listeners, uh, Paul, that you, you find your you, you sink your roots into what you c- can find that, that feeds you in terms of reading and intellectual. And then you have to support it. You have to build a community around there. That's a good community that you can build around the American Spectator, the folks that are there, the things that are happening, the way it's engaged, the thought process, of course, it's spectator.org, spectator.org. Spectator.org, and uh, and to Paul's point, one of the ways to support uh, the the those kinds of efforts and George's memory is to go there and be a part of that community, build your you know build a, a part of your life into that, and and uh, and get uh, uh, fed uh, uh, there. Um, is are, are well, you, you know, go ahead, Paul, go ahead. well, I was going to say it, and, and in that respect, it's quite remarkable how our subscribers, so many of them, subscribe to us. Um, simply because, you know, they, they want to keep us going, right? right? And, and, you know, they, they don't mind subscribing or they would pay even more, uh, just to, just to continue to see us in print or, you know, even if a couple times a year or to, or to read us online. So, you know, we have over the 50 plus years of the magazine, we've built up this network of friends, allies and advocates. Who, uh, who just want to keep it going. And, that, and that's heartening to see. That's, that's good to see. And I tell people all the time, I do it myself, you know, devote and invest and, and support worthy causes. And, you know, and for our readers, we're that. Yeah. Uh, Paul, um, what's your next book? I talk so often about your books. Is there something coming that you can talk about that you can, you can tease us? Well, with? I, yeah, I, I'm always working on a number of different books, but the, the one that was just released a few months ago, and we talked about it on the show, is The Devil and Bella Dodd. Yes, yes. Which yeah, is yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. my biography of Bella Dodd and, yeah. and Phyllis Schlafly and, 
And, you know, they're in St. Louis, the Carmel Menzenti Foundation. Yep. Uh, they all knew about Bella Dodd very, very well. Yeah. So, so that's my latest book. You can find it at Amazon. You can find it at the website of the publisher, Tan Books. Um, the Devil and Bella Dodd. Well, and I know I re- reading your um, uh, reading uh, Bob Terrell talk about you going on as editor. You've been working on a history of the American Spectator, which is fantastic uh, synergy. I, I don't know when it'll come out too, but yeah. that is, as you point out, it's kind of like this this history across the uh, period of say about 1960 till today. It's about as uh, interesting a history of conservatism and Trumpism and uh, faith uh, journey. You know, the uh, post Vatican II Catholics and the evangelicals uh, of Jerry Falwell plus uh, others. I mean, it's a fascinating time in, in uh, history. So that'll be a good one. All right. I got to run Paul Kengor. Uh, oh, any, any, any details on uh, George Newmeyer's family? Anything we should, is there anything yet on uh, services or memorial or uh, anything we should know? No, I've been waiting to hear that myself, okay. Ed, and uh, I could let you know by text or, or whatever. And I would say continue to go to our website, spectator.org. We're going to be putting up more tributes to George and you know, remembering our, um, our good friend and colleague in the way that he needs to be remembered. Very good. All right. Hey, thanks, Dr. Paul Kengor. Congratulations again All right. uh, on your uh, on your new post. Uh, sorry about this uh, this uh, sadness, and we'll be rooting for you, and we'll be spreading the word, and we'll look forward to having you back on the uh, the show very soon. All right, you got it, Ed. Take okay. care. That's uh, Dr. Paul Kengor, and I'll put up on social media. There's a bunch of he's got a bunch of he got a bunch of books, um, but I, I often talk about his book on Judge Clark, who was close to Ronald Reagan, as one that is as interesting as any I've read on how you get a perspective almost. Uh, from the side, from the outside, or from not from the outside because he was an insider, but from the side of Reagan, as opposed to head on. People write a history. Oh, Reagan did this. Reagan did that. This is somebody who was, you know, his his friend, his pal, his buddy, his colleague uh, for a long time. All right, we'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro America Report. Back in a moment. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Time to catch up with John Schlafly. John Schlafly is one half of the Schlafly brothers who write the uh, weekly Schlafly Report, available over at townhall.com and archived at phyllisschlafly.com, uh, keeping, uh, uh, continuing in the tradition of their late mother, Phyllis Schlafly. Uh, John, before we get to the column, this week's column, which posted over at Town Hall uh, on Tuesday late in the evening, is when, late in the afternoon, evening, when it pub- uh, posts, uh, again, available at phyllisschlafly.com, too. Uh, John, before we get to that, though, um, in 2012, uh, the late Phyllis Schlafly co-authored with George Neumeier a book called No Higher Power, Obama's War on Religious Freedom, published by uh, Regnery uh, Press. Um, and George Neumeier passed away in the last, I guess, two days ago, uh, maybe three now, um, at the age of 50. Uh, so first of all, John, do, do you have any recollection of that book? It was almost a decade ago. Um, and, uh, that was in the midst of the Obama, um, second, uh, excuse me, in the second real, the reelection, uh, July of uh, 2012, I think when it came out. Uh, any thoughts or recollections on George Neumeier or that book or, or other? Well, I'm certainly sad about losing George Neumeier at such a young age. Um, 
I did help uh, my mother, Phyllis Schlafly. Um, she co-authored uh, co that book with George Newmeyer. I'm not sure they they didn't know each other well, but they each made a important contribution to that whole subject, which was uh, important. And by the way, you know, your listeners, I'm sure, have just heard how um, uh, Vice President Kamala Harris misstated, misquoted, misrepresented the key line in the, our Declaration of Independence. And, you know, Barack Obama did something very similar to that. That's and right. that was highlighted in the book that Phyllis and George Neumeyer co-authored. You know, somebody who is so unsympathetic to the American way of life and to the American founding documents and can't even quote the most important sentence in the Declaration of Independence. What a disgrace. What, what a disgrace that a person like that could have a high office in our country. It, um, it, it, yeah, especially, yeah. especially right around the time she left out life and right around the time that so many people are <laughs> focused on pro-life marches and all. Uh, John, that of the Phyllis, uh, Phyllis's many books, uh, more than 30, I think, by if you total up the ones where she had contributions, uh, No Higher Power, Obama's War on Religious Freedom. I, I, I was um, I was, you know, active in politics and things at the time. But how was it received? Did it did it uh, that issue because Obamacare had happened and you had the little sisters of the poor and things like that? obviously a big deal was it was it uh, a book that got some traction what's your what's your recollection yeah yes it got some attraction because it, i mean the publisher uh you know geared it to the presidential election 2012 uh obama running for re-election and so there was a lot of very, very timely stuff in there mm. and uh, did get attention and a sale for that reason yeah um so it's um, it was interesting. All right, well, it's a sad story, and we're going to talk uh, to uh, uh, Paul Kengor uh, today too um, about uh, his colleague George Newmeyer. They worked together, wrote together at uh, among other places, the American Spectator. Uh, all right, John, to the column, to the column, the Schlafly Report. Um, you and uh, your brother Andy are writing this week. The title is "Debt Ceiling Discipline Is Good Medicine." Here we are at a debt ceiling uh, battle again. Um, it's a little bit like Groundhog Day, right? Or uh, uh, Lucy with the football with Charlie. Brown. I mean, we're going to all fight about it. We're all going to I'm sure everyone's going to threaten to close down the government. Um, it's going to be the end of the world. You know, the, the toll booths will stay darkened. Uh, you know, uh, military men and women will have to eat dog food. All these things will be developing as we go towards it. What's the what's the real in this? You talk about how big it is. Uh, thirty one point four trillion dollar national debt. W what could really be done? I mean, what at this point, is there a way that this can truly get un out of control spending under control? It's it's one of these recurring events which focuses um, uh, the public attention on our out of control spending and debt situation. And so even though I'm not really sure what can be done about it, frankly, uh, it's still, you know, it's like, um, you know, we've got to seriously address this because, um, uh, I mean, because, you know, as people have been saying, people have been saying for years that it can't go on forever, and yet it seems to. But uh, well, and John, let me, so let me say it this way: I think, I think, in preparation for this fight, uh, uh, former President Donald Trump uh, did an interview a week or so ago, and he said, "Whatever you do, don't touch Medicare and Social Security." You know, you can say what you want about Donald Trump; he knows politics. I mean, as soon as you start talking about, oh, we're going to get spending under control by cutting Medicare or Social Security, you'll never win a national election again. So I think Donald Trump knew that, and by saying that, he sort of inoculated the. Uh, Republicans uh, somewhat uh, to this. But but, um, you know, John, uh, before Christmas, 
uh, Republicans join Democrats. One point seven trillion dollars in spending. I was at a meal uh, in the last uh, couple days with a friend of ours that would know uh, uh, politics. He would know policy. He'd know economics. He did not realize that between the covid bailouts, the covid payments, as well as the one point seven trillion, almost all of the public sector uh, uh, pensions received either a bailout or payments as a transfer. In other words, the things that should happen when you overspend and accountability come from it are papered over. Um, so, you know, I guess where are we headed, John? If you keep going three point four trillion dollars national debt, keep spending. I mean, I know we're speculating, but is the is the fear a crash? Is the fear more inflation? Uh, what is it that people need to sort of feel to understand that? Oh, you know, electric car subsidies, as you write, solar and wind energy boondoggles, uh, et cetera, federal regulations, bad, bad, bad. What could come? Is it the economy slowing down, or is it do we just kind of um, uh, keep plowing ahead? Well, uh, as you say, the lame duck session of of the last Congress put through all the spending all the way from now until September 30th, which was an outrage that meant that that handicapped uh, what the new Republican House can do. And so Kevin McCarthy doesn't have a great deal of ammunition, you know, and I would say one of the first things Republicans ought to do was to stop would be to stop sending money to Ukraine. But unfortunately, a significant part of Kevin McCarthy's conference, which is a very narrow uh, uh, majority, as you know, uh, supports that. So he's handicapped on that, too. I'm not sure he'll even get the ability to audit the money because there's uh, there's enough Republicans in the House of Representatives who basically are willing to give Zelensky a blank check. I'm sorry about that. I think it's terrible. And uh, in a way, you could say that, um, you know, nobody can be serious about the federal budget if they're willing to support that war. It's got that war has got to stop and it's got to stop now. Well, and we're talking with John Schlafly again. The Schlafly Report runs over townhall.com and also available archived at phyllisschlafly.com. Uh, John, it's interesting you bring that up. We were exchanging, you and I were exchanging um, uh, texts uh, in the last couple of days about this. I mean, I, I had been, I, I had, I, I noticed um, the the news out of the Ukraine that uh, the defense ministry has a number of resignations for corruption in the last 48 hours, not not in the last six months. But I did a search to try to find the name of the person who was in one of the resignations. And, and up came an article from three months before the invasion uh, that 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 described in great detail the how Zelensky transferred his massive wealth to others so that he could go into government, how, you know, all this offshoring is happening in the Ukraine. Again, as you point out, we sent them $100 billion, uh, and we don't know how it was spent. We probably never will, and we're going to send them more. I mean, I, I, you know, at a certain point, um, all the um, all the goodwill generated by photo ops and by, um, you know, these the, the uh, PR is flies in the face of the reality. And, uh, and again, I mean, uh, you know, back to your column, John, um, if you're if you're talking about the federal government, um, the southern border, uh, you know, uh, one of the tricks that's happening at the southern border, we had Todd Benzman on yesterday. They reported 250,000 people coming across. Those are encounters in December. In in uh, in February, they will report that in January, there were 
only 50,000. This is, this is what Benzman predicts because they're going to put the other 200,000 plus into the migrant system, into the asylum system, and they're going to be in our system already, which is hundreds of millions of dollars a year to Catholic charities and affiliated nonprofits to, to keep this racket going. I mean, John, again, at a certain point, who's willing to stop this? It doesn't look like Republicans are willing to stop it. No, and it's important to realize that even if, you know, these um, these migrants do uh, work and find work, uh, and which some of them do, of course, they're low-skilled people and they don't pay their own way. So they depend upon the support of the federal government, as all low-income people do, to um, basically enable them to survive inside our advanced countries. So importing these millions of people does not benefit the country as a whole. And uh, so so some people can, we can feel sorry for them all we want, but truly they'd be better off if, if we wanted to help those people to do it in their home country rather than here. Yeah. And that's true of refugees in general. Yeah. Well, and it just it goes on and on. All right. Uh, John, we're out of time. John Schlafly, unfortunately, I got to run. Uh, John Schlafly, his column uh, runs over at townhall.com. This week's column, the title is uh, The Debt Ceiling Discipline is Good Medicine by John and Andy Schlafly. Townhall.com as well as archived over at phyllisschlafly.com, like all of uh, John's uh, columns. Uh, thanks very much, John. And I'll put that up on social media. Also, you can uh, get it there and we will uh, take a break. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, presenting a daily conservative pro-family perspective since 1983 and continuing the legacy of Phyllis Schlafly. Now here's the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. Elon Musk properly complained that Apple has threatened to withhold Twitter from its app store, but won't tell us why. Without hearing any response by Apple, Musk tweeted again later the same day. This is a battle for the future of civilization. If free speech is lost, even in America, tyranny is all that lies ahead. Musk is right. Perhaps Apple is trying to exclude Twitter because the party bosses in China are telling Apple to crack down on freedom of speech here. You may recall the outrage in China two years ago when an NBA executive merely tweeted a statement of support for freedom in Hong Kong. Both Apple and Google banned the right-leaning Parler platform until Parler began moderating its content according to their guidelines. Musk's decision to reinstate Donald Trump and thousands of other users who'd been banned from Twitter has raised the possibility of the California big tech leftist companies trying to ostracize Twitter. Musk went so far as to announce, if there is no other choice, I will make an alternative phone. Musk has the resources to develop and market his own smartphone, and that would be welcome competition to the oligopoly in that industry, too. Musk may be one of our best hopes to take on China's alliance with American big tech. On November 14th, President Biden met in person with Chinese dictator Xi Jinping in Bali, Indonesia, for the first time since Biden became president. Biden was also scheduled to meet with other world leaders on that same trip. But President Biden abruptly called a lid which is his expression for retiring while others continue working. Donald Trump has repeatedly emphasized at his rallies and in his speeches that other world leaders are at the top of their game in mental acuity, unlike Joe Biden. Now the China-Apple alliance is trying to bully Musk to return to censorship of conservative viewpoints on Twitter, 
and this could include anti-China regime tweets too. We should all recognize this for what it is. China is coming after free speech in America, and they're using our own businesses to do it. We must resist these encroachments as the breach of sovereignty that they are. This has been the Phyllis Schlafly Report from Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. Political correctness is no longer simply about restricting speech. This tool for tyranny has led to employees being fired, pastors silenced, small businesses closed, and truth suppressed. Thankfully, the politically correct can't censor the work at phyllisschlafly.com. Join us, won't you, at phyllisschlafly.com. Thanks for listening to the Phyllis Schlafly Report. Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Got to wrap things up fast, but I want to preview for you John Cribbs, John Cribbs, my friend and the author of The Rail Splitter. The Rail Splitter, a historical novel about uh, Abe Lincoln from his early youth uh, through just before he runs for president. That book is out. Republic Book Publishers. It's phenomenal. It is phenomenal. It's uh, really good. You're going to want to get it. And uh, I'm going to have John back on the show. Uh, I am not sure if I'm going to have him back on the show this week or next, but whenever it is, I will uh, definitely want you to check that out, and I will be uh, publicizing it uh, and helping with that book. It's great. His first book was called Old Abe, and his next book is called The uh, Rail Splitter. So check that out. Plan on it. All right. Uh, thank you, Noah Dingley, our great producer. Uh, thank you to Ryan Hyde for assisting, and thank you all for listening. We will be back um, tomorrow uh, with a lot more. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Talk to you then. Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.